This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Hello and welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast, a week on from the climax of the third Grand Slam of the year and what a climax it was. We hear from three of the less heralded men to have made the headlines over the fortnight, one of whom won a much-coveted first Wimbledon doubles title and two more whose performances in the singles won them plenty of admirers during their time at SW19. I'm Seb Lozier, and over the course of the show, we'll hear from Wimbledon semi-finalist Roberto Bautista Agut and quarter-finalist Guido Pella. But we start with one half of the championship-winning men's doubles pair, Colombia's Juan Sebastian Cabal and Robert Farah. Jill Krabus has been speaking with big-serving Farah and their coach, Jeff Kutsir. We've been playing well for quite a while now, uh, even the year before, and 2017 was was going to be a very good year until um, until I got injured and uh, 16 the same thing and 15 the same thing and 14 the same thing I guess every year so it's about being healthy every year there's (laughs) been an injury that takes me out of the game for three four months and then that's it you finish ninth in the race or tenth in the race and you're right there about to make London but those three, four months make a huge difference. And also you have to take in consideration that you lose three months, but then you have to come back, get back to the level of confidence of tennis-wise, and it's not just coming back and you're back, you know? So so that also adds up another month, let's say. So I guess last year was the first year that I was able to play a full year, and Sebas also was able to compete at his 100% the full year, and I think that makes a huge difference. You're able to practice every time, the way the way you want to practice you're able to focus on whatever you want to focus and and i mean australian open making a final right away you're you it gives you so much confidence for the rest of the year you play a little bit more loose let's say um and i mean that helped a lot too and jeff you've been working with them for a while as a team cabal and farah just going forward um what are the steps that you take to just constantly, you know, keep them motivated, keep them, f- keep things fresh on the court, and just what are their goals to focus on? Yeah, I think one of the the, the things that for me that I've worked now uh, so long with them, it's the fact that they they actually think more positive in the sense that they believe more they can win these big tournaments. I think last year was a gr- very good uh, uh, start to the year, and uh, if I have to really sum it up, I think they're more professional. You know, I think they... How? How so, would you say? Off court, what they do, you know, with their, their, their food, they're on a very strict diet. They've changed that a lot. It, it, it makes my work a little bit easier because now I can push them a little bit more. I can get the, the quality that I want more. And I've, I, I just think, like, they, they've come of age to realize we're not just a part of a certain group. We can be a part of the elite group that they can really do well. So I can see the change in their in the body language. So I... I, I I, I pick up a lot on these things. I, I don't say it's like, oh, it was all excited. I try to pick up all uh, behavioral things, how we warm up, how we practice the day before, all those things. I try to pick up and see if there's a change in how we've approached every match and now why is it different now. So I pick up all those little things. And I think they, they, uh, 
becoming so much more professional, but they believe uh, more that they can win. And these details are so important. Have you felt a difference, Rob, in, in healthy, like the nutrition-wise? Have you felt a difference in your body or how you perform on the court? I think um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer of routines. And I think life has kind of like shown me that they have to be like, they have to be in my in my in my daily life, you know, routines. And that's what I've learned the most from like, let's say past injuries. So I believe in good diet. I believe in, in gym. I believe in work. And I believe in like doing this, not over a period of a day, a week or a month, but over the period of a full year. And it just maybe calm your, your mind that you know you're doing things well. So then the, it, it just it just allows you to say, okay, I'm doing everything I can in my power uh, to do things well. Now I only have to show up on court, compete, give my best, and then I mean, if something happens, if you know, if an injury shows up or anything like that, then it's completely out of your control, you know. So you you, you try your best, and that's it. So I think that gives you a, an easiness of mind that you're doing things well. And I, and and I also I read a great article online, just um, you know, about the emotion how your success has transferred back home in Colombia. Can you just touch on that a little bit and what that means to you? I think um, there was a few players before us that kind of opened the way to, to like the sport as a whole in Colombia tennis. And uh, it became more and more um, famous. Um, let's say Santi Geraldo and, uh, and Alejandro Falla kind of opened the way up and made some great results and then I think the success we had last year uh, people seeing us at the O2 playing after Federer before Djokovic and it's actually on TV and they can watch it on ESPN and they like then they get a sense that w where we're at where what we're playing for and what like what we've we've done and let's say for for Colombian tennis and that 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 just translates to to pride, you know, to Colombian pride, and 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 people get get involved with that, and now slowly we are being recognized more and more in Colombia. And let's say things like me going to the mall uh, a year ago, maybe or two years ago, they wouldn't recognize me as much as now. Now I go to a mall, and let's say five people kind of say, "Yeah, Farah, let's do a picture." You know, does Jeff come as your bodyguard or? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm 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 his bodyguard, you know. <laughs> But he's famous in South Africa, so he, ha he has, his, he has his, his share of fame in, in, in South Africa. So he's done really well in his past, and yeah, it's just just got to keep grinding. Yeah, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to, Jeff. Of course, I mean high number twelve in the world, six doubles titles. I mean, gotta give you some accolades too. We we had a great mixed doubles match together. Yeah. That we'll never forget. That was fun at Wimbledon. But um, yeah, I mean, just talk about like your journey just a little bit. I know I won't keep you guys too long, but um, you know your journey from player to coach, that transition, and and what what you've learned more about the game by you know taking a step back from being a player and in a coach position. Yeah, it, it is a different role, uh, Joe. It's, I feel like uh, when I was injured, if I'd become a coach in with that nine months, maybe I would have been a better player because now I've learned so much more. 
you know, as a coach, you pick up so many different things. And as Rob would say, I've never lost a match on the bench. So it's a, <laughs> always feel like, you know, you pick up something like, how do you not see that? And, you know, like undefeated. pick up these things undefeated. So, yeah, it, it is a different role. It's a role that I that I really enjoy a lot. I enjoy working with these guys. I, I would try and... Um, take my experience where I felt like I could have done better and sort of n for them not to make the same mistakes. So that's what I'm trying to teach them. And then I want them to be obviously way, way better. And then hopefully they'll keep the same. And then for Colombian tennis in the future, do the same. And if, if Rob or Cabal wants to coach, then they can have that sort of what I've taught them. And then obviously the experience they've learned and pass it on for generations to come. So that is that is my idea of, of the coaching, not just uh, on the court but also being very professional because I got taught that way in a, on a young age you know to be really professional and stuff and that's what I'm trying to teach these guys you know it's, yeah maybe I'm a perfectionist but I try to do things this way and I believe if you do it like Rob said uh, when it comes to routine which is very important so it needs to be sort of not just okay match day let's now the routine needs to be there it needs to be there from practice to that and it's a long way we've been to say guys we got to start from it doesn't start just on the match court it starts on the practice court it's starts before the practice because dinner time there's, there's a lot of different things how you guys if you want to talk about routine so that's what I'm trying to to teach them and still and and for me it's nice because I keep on learning every week I'm out here I watch so many matches whether it's singles doubles I'll keep on learning and I, 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 I like the idea what I'm doing because I'm growing as a coach and I want to keep growing and obviously help people in South Africa again from what I what I learned on tour so with these guys in the last past years it's been fun and uh, I keep on learning. Wimbledon doubles champion Robert Farah there and coach Jeff Kutsia and if they were enjoying Grand Slam success for the first time in the singles Roberto Bautista Agut was also breaking new ground. Earlier this year in Melbourne the Spaniard reached a first Grand Slam quarter-final this time he reached a first semi-final where there was absolutely no shame in the end in falling in four sets to the eventual champion Novak Djokovic. Now I, I feel great. I think uh, playing uh, a good match, and you know tennis is uh, um, very, very, uh, very tough a sport, and uh, to be 100% uh, every day or every tournament during the year, it's it's very tough. And you've got horses, which, if you don't mind, I just want to ask you about because I think it's a big part of what you do when you're at home, when you're relaxing. How important are they to you in, in helping you relax away from the tennis, your horses? Well, I think they are very important for me. No? I work hard during all, all my life because I had that dream to, to have my house with my stables, with my horses. And, well, it's, I, think, I think it's a very good part of, of my life and I like to spend a lot of time with them when I have at uh, when I'm at home and uh, after a very stressed life and on the on the tennis tour because you you also played football didn't you when you were younger yeah. until you were 14 at Villarreal how soon did you make the decision to be a tennis player was it a difficult choice it was a very difficult choice, you know. I was uh, doing both sports, but uh, when I started to play in a, in a big field in 11 against 11, uh, was uh, uh, getting tougher physically because uh, one match, a uh, 90-minute match in a big field, uh, was uh, getting uh, toughest for for my body, and I couldn't recover. 
and well I had to 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 make a choice and uh, I like still to to play soccer but uh, you know it's uh, very uh, easy to to get injured or to to get a, a shock for another uh, opponent and I like to play when I have uh, time when I go when I when I'm staying in preseason and I still have two months to to, to play but uh, uh, now I I'm very focused on tennis and I wish uh, in the future to 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 have uh, two or three years of of soccer. If Bautista Agut was reaching new heights at this rarefied level, the same could be said for Guido Pella, who lost out to the Spaniard in his first Grand Slam quarterfinal. At 24 in the world, Pella is currently Argentina's second-ranked player behind Juan Martín del Potro and just ahead of Diego Schwartzman. So I tried to find out a little bit more about him, starting way back when, in the early days. Well, I'm from Bahia Blanca. It's a small city south of Buenos Aires in Argentina. And I started to play tennis, I think, at 3-4 years old because my entire family uh, played tennis in the past and now in the present and in the future for sure. And yeah, I, I didn't have so, so many choices. So yeah, I started to play tennis with my father, with my grandfather, there in a, in a club. Um, my father had a club with uh, hard courts and my grandfather uh, had with clay courts. So I was playing a little bit uh, in both, both surfaces. So yeah, that, that, that's where I started and I remember that I played uh, since I was 3 to 12, 13 and then I, I went to Buenos Aires because if you, have, if you want to improve your tennis you need to, to get out because the only place in Argentina that you can actually practice uh, to be a pro is Buenos Aires. So remembering back now, your, your earliest memories, are they of the clay or of the hard courts? No, no, hard courts for sure. Uh, well, that court was not hard court for sure. It was more like a like a yard with the painted lines and everything but yeah I remember I practiced there with my sister with friends uh, back then we had a, a few very good players in junior so I had a very good competition there and I think I improved a lot with them and yeah I, I started to play there after that I had to change my game a little bit because uh, in Argentina you have to play in clay court a lot so my game my game was more of a hardcore, hardcore player so yeah, I had to do a few, a few things to my game, but yeah, I, I was very happy about that. Was it always just tennis, tennis, tennis? Because you were born, of course, in a time, well, four years after Argentina won the Soccer yeah. World Cup, Maradona, yeah. Mania. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you play soccer too? I, I didn't play soccer so much. I love soccer. Uh, if it was for me, I would play soccer <laughs> rather than tennis, but <laughs> I'm a tennis player now. But uh, I played basketball uh, a few years, and then I, I swam a lot. But, uh, yeah, most of the time I play tennis because, like I said, my father played tennis, my grandfather played tennis, so I didn't have so many choices. I read somewhere that you're a Man United fan. Is yeah. that true? And how does that happen? Well, I, I, I have a friend who is a huge fan of Manchester United, so when we were little kids, we started to cheer for United with the uh, Skulls, uh, with uh, Ryan Giggs, and then after Rooney, Tevez, Heinze, Verón, so there are... There were a lot of Argentinian players uh, playing back then for United, so we we used to watch all their matches on Sunday, uh, UEFA Champions League matches, Premier League matches. So, yeah, I liked it a lot. Of course, I'm from Olimpo. It's a very small club in Argentina, but uh, I like them both. 
you're growing up in Argentina, playing tennis, you say, in, in Buenos Aires. How, how easy is it as a kid to grow up as a tennis player in Argentina and to develop your skills in Buenos Aires? Uh, it's very tough. Uh, it's unbelievable uh, how many players we have and we had in the past with uh, not so much like places to play or to grow up in tennis. So it's very tough because you don't have like a, a practice facility so big like maybe France, England uh, has. So we had to find our own way, our own path. And yeah, I, I had lucky because there are a, amazing teachers in, in Argentina, amazing uh, person who knows a lot of tennis and a lot about tennis. So I went there and I started to, to practice with Fabian Blengino. He was a uh, Coria's coach, uh, Caleri's coach, so he knows a lot about tennis. So, yeah, it was good. And in Buenos Aires, like I said, there are uh, so many players playing there because it's the only place. So, yeah, I started to play there, started to play much better than, than in, in my city. And then, yeah, I, I grew up, I, I won a lot of matches. I remember my junior phase was unbelievable because I... I didn't lose so many matches, so that time was was a very happy one. Yeah, because I mean, you, you're what two, three years younger than Juan Martín del Potro, um, Leonardo Meyer. D- did you come up against these guys much when you were when you were younger? Well, not because they, they are a little bit older, so we play different tournaments. But uh, I remember seeing them playing in the Orange Bowl or maybe Eddie Herr, uh, also Roland Garros Jr. On, on TV and yeah and after that uh, yeah we shared a few tournaments in Futures and Challengers but well Juan Martin when he was 18 he was like 18 in the world so I didn't share with him so so, mu- so many tournaments but with Leo yes a lot of Challengers uh, at the beginning some ATP qualies so yeah we, 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 sh- we share a lot of with him and then also with Diego Schwartzman coming through, the spirit always seems to be so strong with the Argentine players, um, no matter what the sport, but including tennis. Why is that? <laughs> I don't know really, uh, but I think it's, it's because we, we really want to, to make things good. We really want to, to play good in, in any sports because it's like, um, it's like a religion for Argentina. The sports in Argentina is like that, no matter what sport. So... I think when you when you practice tennis, football, uh, well, soccer or even basketball, you feel like uh, a lot of pressure from from the people, from your coach, from your family to to do it good. Good pressure, not a bad pressure. So, I think that's why we have so many players with so few, like, like I said, like facilities to to practice. And yeah, we, when Diego two years ago he he made like quarterfinals in U.S. Open was a was an unbelievable because he, he's two years younger than me and we, we play a lot of tournaments together. We are a very good friend. Uh, so, yeah, it was, I was very happy for him. Did you ever contemplate leaving Argentina for your tennis or, or have you always been happy to stay? I, I had a chance to go to France when I was like 12 or 13, but uh, I didn't want to do that because it was a new country, new language. So uh, I, I hesitated a lot. Uh, back then, my father and mother also... They didn't want me to go there, and I think it was the right choice. Uh, but yeah, if you want to improve your game, if you want to play tennis, and you don't have so many choices, yeah, you can you can leave. That's for sure. But I think in Buenos Aires you can play tennis, you can improve because, like I said, there are so many players, so many coaches, and it's easier.
You mentioned the coaches. Jose Acasuzo, I think, is your coach now, and you've got a couple of fitness trainers. How important have they been? And, and talk to me a little bit about your team in terms of your your recent form and this incredible vein of form that you've that you've reached. Well, to have Jose on my team, it's it's very, it's very special because he he was 20, I think, 21 in the world, 19, I don't know, but he was, I think, top 20. So. He has a lot of experience on tour and all all their all his experience. He he can share it with me. He can improve my game in a lot of ways, not only in tennis, you know, mentally, physically, uh, because he played unbelievable good tennis in the past. So I think I'm learning a lot from him. He knows the way I should play. He knows the path I, sh- I, sh- I should follow. So I think we, we're in a in a very good way, and I think uh, we can improve a lot, and that's that's a good thing. You're enjoying your tennis. Exactly. I think that's the key. It's not easy because usually you you lose every week. Uh, you need to face with that. You need to deal with that. And I think I'm doing that uh, very good. And that, that's why I'm playing so good. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. One man watching on at SW19 was former player turned tennis channel analyst and reporter Prakash Armitraj. With one tour final to his name back in 2008, his new role gives him access to the latter stages of tournaments on a far more regular basis, as he freely admitted to Nick McCarville. I was just thinking that, actually, um, <laughs> earlier this week. I'm like, I was here with a few really close friends who were playing in the event, and I'm like, you know what, if they leave, if they lose, they, get, they leave early. I'm, I'm, I'm here till the end of the tournament regardless. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird feeling, I would imagine, going from always being on the fly to now your gig with Tennis Channel, which you were, when you go to an event, you know the production days that you're there for. Yeah, we map out everything ahead of time. And I think as we've been, it's a new role, this global correspondent role. They sort of experimented with it last year at the ATP Finals with me, and it went well. So they created this 100-day sort of platform this year. Um, So I had a good idea of what I'm doing, and now it's just a matter of mapping everything out properly. The first few days of each event usually are the most content because there are so many players here. Interviews, openings, closings, previews, color pieces. And then, as you said, as there's less and less people, it gets a, a little bit um, you know, tighter at the end of the week. Okay, so the last time you spoke with us, we talked a lot about Tennis Channel, but this time I want to focus on you, your tennis, your family, because I think if listeners were, were tuned in, were keyed in when I said your surname, Armitrage, they would certainly know or at least have an inkling of, I've heard that before, but your dad and both your dad and your uncle were professional players and very successful at that. But can you give us a, a little bit of history, because I, I know there's a lot of your family in tennis. Um, yeah, I'll try to uh, summarize it very quickly, actually. Um, my grandmother was actually the one who loved the sport. Um, she played for her college in India, in the southern part of India, and uh, she brought Anand into the game, who was the oldest of the three brothers. He started playing. He was very good. He was sort of a child prodigy in chess and various other things. And uh, Dad was actually quite sick. He spent about three-fourths of the year in the hospital. Um, very bad lungs, um, really bad wheezing. So the doctor actually recommended an outdoor sport simply to improve his lung capacity. Grandmother put him into tennis. Uh, lo and behold, she sort of sunk her blood, sweat, and tears into him. He became India's sort of first real professional athlete and then sort of transcended that on the international stage. He's top ten in the world, started in a James Bond movie, United Nations Messenger of Peace, did a little bit of everything at a very high level. And... Um, 
you know, he was still on the tour when I was growing up. I was born in 83. Mm. He was still playing very well. So, I mean, I have pictures of, you know, everyone from Jimmy Connors, Boris Becker, everyone carrying me as a, as a baby. So I, I grew up around the game. Was fortunate enough that dad never sort of pushed me into it. Like, you know, you see a lot of you know, tennis parents do. And they let me develop my own love for it. And um, I remember, actually, this is, this is an interesting story. I was about nine and a half. We were at Wimbledon. He was playing the 35 and overs. And uh, he took me into the champion's locker room because there was an A locker room and a B locker room. And I found myself sitting in between Becker and Sampras, hmm. you know, my, my two idols. And I, that's sort of the moment I realized this is, this is what I want to do. And how old were you then? Uh, just uh, almost 10. Okay. And I came back. That fall, I won my first little, tiny little tournament and just, you know, caught the bug. And uh, you know, went from there. So what what's it like? Because uh, you know, people listening to the channel will be huge tennis fans. I grew up as a tennis fan myself, and then eventually found it as a career. I, I wasn't a very good player, <laughs> but uh, what was it like as a kid to be surrounded by? I mean, you probably wouldn't have known when you were super little, but to be surrounded by that world. I mean, you you really did grow up seeped in the tennis world. Very much. I mean, I I, I have clear memories of. I think we were in Hitfeld, Germany, for a senior event. Uh, you know, uh, as, you do. as you do, exactly. And um, I was very small, maybe 11 years old, and I, I remember hitting with Rod Laver, Ken Rosewall, uh, because they were there playing with, playing with Dad. And, you know, these are just images that are just ingrained in your head. Um, Ivan Izovich in the 90s, when I was still quite small, um, that, you know, Dad was, you know, either hitting with or whatever. So these are memories you appreciate more as you grow older, um, but uh, it's something I wouldn't change for the world. And again, uh, there's we're we're just getting small snippets of it, but uh, Indian tennis has uh, tennis in the country of India has uh, a great history, and that very much is seeped within your family. But what what do you feel like um, the role that your family has played in that? But then also, you know, we see Leander Pace. We saw what Sonia Mirza was able to do. Um, I think they both reached number one in the world in doubles. Yes. Sonia certainly yes. did. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I guess right now it's not a powerhouse, right. India, but it certainly is one of those countries that you would see has a great tennis uh, history. Certainly, the sport, you know, is one of the most widely watched sports in India. Uh, I wouldn't count cricket as a sport. It's more of a religion over there. <laughs> but, um, you know, tennis is certainly up there. And, um, and, and no, listen, my grandmother, father, uncle all had a, had a big part to do with it. You know, dad was really the first professional athlete in India. You know, everyone used to say, oh, you, you play tennis, that's great, but what do you do for a living? That was, that was sort of how it was back yeah. then. So um, it, it, it sort of showed everyone that this is possible. And I think that gave way for not just tennis professionals, but professionals from all other sports. Now you see um, Joshina Chinapa doing so well in badminton and so forth. So there's, there's all sorts of other sports that have given way, I think, because of that. And, um, and even after Dad's playing days, he started the Britannia Amitraj Tennis Academy. And out of that came Leander Pays. Out of that came Somdev Devarman. Um, we produced a lot of Asian and national champions out of there. It was an extremely successful academy. Um, we, we just had an event in December in the southern part of India where the local federation, um, the Tamil Nadu Tennis Association, honored sort of uh, all of the players who've made a difference to Indian tennis in the last hundred years. And um, in the last segment, it was myself, Anand, my dad's older brother, himself, BJ, Somdev, and both the Krishnans. And to stand there with all of them, you, you sort of realize what a uh, piece of history you were a part of, which is really special.
Yeah, you know what I love too is, and we get to sort of uh, dissect this on radio, is the fact that, uh, you know, your family sort of has eat, slept, and breathed this sport. And it's not just at the top level, right? You're talking about an academy and community and federations and a country. Uh, tennis can be a lifestyle, no matter how you choose to involve yourself with it. But it's it's um, inspiring, in a sense. Well, Dad and I completely feel this way as well, is tennis is really the sport for a lifetime. You know, you, it teaches you so many different lessons that I wouldn't have been able to learn anywhere else, traveling on the tour and, you know, knowing all of the guys that I still see here now, while some of them are still playing, some are not. You know, you learn communication, appreciation for other cultures, other religions. Um, you know, you, you learn to be able to communicate even if you don't speak the same language, which I think is a beautiful thing. It teaches you how to win, teaches you how to lose. These are, these are not sport lessons, these are life lessons. So uh, what tennis has given me, I... I could have never learned anywhere else, um, but it, it, it's a beautiful. It's beautiful also to realize you're part of something greater. Um, even now, some of these guys I've known for 20 years, mm. and I interviewed Verdasco yesterday. And I mean, I remember, you know, I think playing him in Indian Wells back in like 2001. That's almost that's almost 20 years ago, <laughs> you know, or something like that. So it, it's it, it's beautiful to have these relationships with all these guys. So if we go back to that story, you're nine years old, you sit between Sampras and Becker, you win that little tournament, but then things obviously snowballed because you eventually get a top 200 ranking. But take us, give us a little bit of a synopsis between nine and getting to when you turn pro in 2003. Um, absolutely. Uh, I wasn't a very good junior, actually. 10, 11, 12, I would practice great, but I would never win anything. I think the first time I even made a national tournament was when I was 16. Mm. Um, but dad always said, you know, you play a servant volley game, it'll develop later. And lo and behold, he was right. By the time I was 18, I won Kalamazoo, uh, which made me the best in the U.S. I got a wild card into the U.S. Open for winning it. Um, that was the year Sampras won it. Uh, I lost to Peridorn, Shrisopan, when he was yeah. on his tear, top 10. And um, I think he lost to Ruzetsky, Ruzetsky lost to Sampras. Sampras won the tournament. Um, really cool experience. And um, I played college tennis at USC won a national title uh, my freshman year with them. I was most valuable player. And um, we were the lowest seed in the history of the NCAA to win it. We were 11. And uh, I turned pro after that. And, um, and I grew up with stories of uh, dad playing Davis Cup and all these heroic tales. And I always wanted to do the same thing. And about six months into my career, no, three months into my career, I had become India's number one ranked singles player. Wow. And it was ex exactly 30 years since dad became India's number one singles player for Davis mm. Cup which is really cool um, and there are uh, you know a few unique moments which which I'll which I'll remember I made the singles final of the Hall of Fame championships in Newport um, I lost to Santoro there that was a fun week dad had won that event so there was some history there um, in 2005 this is actually an interesting story in 1985 rather dad was leading India against Sweden in Davis Cup it was in Bangalore in India Mats Willander Edberg the, yeah. ho the whole yeah, lot yeah. And there was a picture of me as a two-year-old sweeping the ball on the tennis court and a picture of me, dad, and the ball on the racket. And they put it in the paper, big spread, and it said underneath, will Prakash ever wield a racket for India in Davis Cup? 20 years to the month, I led India as their number one against Sweden. Willander came as their captain. Really? Bjorkman and Johansson were there. And we played against them. I was playing number one singles. And I was on the court. Dad was kind of coaching me or whatever. The next morning in the paper, they ran both pictures side by side, and it was 
it, it was one of those special, special moments. Yeah, and excuse me, I missed that final in Newport. So oh, you're runner-up to Santoro, but you had really great success. You mentioned grass now a couple times. Why did your game work so well on grass? You know, I grew up uh, playing the sort of serve and volley game. I didn't develop my groundies until much later. Um, you know, I, I was much more focused on stroke production and technique. So I think I had fairly good technique, but I probably neglected the body a little bit. You know, I think I may have played one really full season. Um, the rest were a lot of injuries. I had a left wrist surgery, reconstructor, right shoulder surgery, which mm. eventually is what took me out of the game in 2013. Um, so, you know, I did end up missing a lot of time, but, uh, but there, were some, there were some special moments in there. Yeah, what's, um, for you, uh, you know, hovering in that sort of ATP challenger world, uh, we see the glitz and the glam of the Masters 1000s and the slams, but you guys go to some backwater towns and you're playing in some tough events. And what was the drive that kept you going and what did you find most challenging ab about those events? Um, you know, for me, the sport was really about the beauty of it. You know, I mean, I, it was a love for me. I mean, I remember vividly, you know, being 11, 12, 13 years old, you know, I'd be begging dad to wake up at 5.30 and practice with me for an hour before going to school, finish school, and then come back and practice again. And I, I, I remember sitting in class, you know, thinking of, you know, chipping and charging after in practice and just being able to do that on the court, it, it was an art, you know, it brought a beauty to me and I, that's what drove me for, for quite some time. Do you feel like it's, uh, I, I feel as though we're more and more aware of it now because maybe of, of social media um, and the way that we're seeing guys sort of try to work their way up to the slams, but um, is, is it a whole different world playing, say, those, that when you're ranked 200, 100, 200, 300 in the world and you're not necessarily at a Masters 1000? Um, well, you know, I was, you know, around top 200 for, you know, most of my time. Um, and at that point, you're playing a lot of qualities of tour events. Yes. And, you know, and some big challengers. And it's interesting, some of the big challengers, they're not that different than the 250s. Mm. You know, you get, uh, you get decent crowds and, um, you know, the events are nice. Uh, sometimes when you go to the lower events, which I had to do when I was working my ranking back up, it's a struggle because... You know, everything is much more difficult, um, you know, from the food to the hospitality to obviously there's, you know, not many people watching. So it's kind of those things where you have to pay your dues until you until you make it up. But um, it's not one of those levels you should stay at too long. Mm. You know, if you if you have the drive, you push through it. And if you're good enough, you'll you'll make it out. What's the I mean, is there one moment that sort of crops up when you think of your playing time? You've told a couple of great stories already, but. Are there one or two moments that really pop into mind when you think of your playing days? This is going to be a weird one for you, but it, it was a very significant one for me. So we like weird here. I'll, I'll, I'll tell it. Um, I heard every story about my dad growing up. You know, for me, the two greatest heroes that I still draw inspiration from are him and Muhammad Ali. Um, I know every single word they've ever said. Um, the one story I'll never forget about my dad was in 1987. He was kind of older. You know, they'd almost written him off a little bit, and. You know, he was playing Davis Cup India. Ramesh Krishnan was their number one player at 50 in the world. You know, nothing in the top 10 or anything like that. Mm. And um, they, that's the year they made the Davis Cup final. They had beaten Australia, who had the singles and doubles Wimbledon champions. They beat Argentina, who had two top 10 players. They beat Israel, who had Amos Mansdorf. Wow. Unbelievable. Uh, and they lost to Sweden in the final. And 
in the Argentina match, my father was playing Martin Haiti. They were down two matches to one on the fourth day. So dad was playing to keep India in, in the competition. Um, one, two down. He was down two sets to love. And he was down double break in the third set. Okay. Wins that set. Fourth set, he's down two match points. The whole crowd had basically left because he was getting he was he was done, and he saves it with two uh, drop volleys, and comes back and wins, eight six or nine seven in the fifth. The crowd started pouring back in, and the headline of the paper I still have the cutting in one of my books back home. Him on his knees, and it says the dead man rose and walked, and walked. It just gives me goosebumps thinking yeah. about it. There's something about that that I just thought it was one of those moments. It was almost like a superhero movie, and I just always wanted one of those, you know, in my life. And it actually ended up being on the exact same court in the exact same stadium. Um, in 2008, uh, myself and Rohan Bopana were playing singles um, against Japan. Go Soweda and Kei Nishikori. Bopes beat Nishikori in the first match. They were both, you know, top 50 at the time. And um, I found myself two sets to love down. It was like 125 degrees outside, <laughs> as it is in India. Um, and two sets to love down, break down in the third. Ended up coming back, saving a couple of match points, and winning 8-6 in the fifth on that same court. And I, I almost, I feel like I blacked out because I didn't remember much during it because it was so hot. And I just remember coming off the court really emotional because it just sort of, for me as a kid, harkened back to this story. And it, it may not sound so significant on the outside, but it was a, it was a special moment. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and ATPTour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Wimbledon also provided a fitting career swan song for a former semi-finalist. Marcos Bagdatis has called time on a glittering career. The Cypriots chose Wimbledon as his final tournament. Why here? <laughs> Why not? Huh? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there is some reason for me. It's, here is the place where I saw the first match of my of my life when I was around seven years old, watch Andre Agassi against Ivan Ivcevic in the finals on TV. The 34-year-old has repeatedly fought back from injury. What a comeback from Baggy! And won an ATP Challenger Tour in March this year. But the battle has taken its toll. The last two years have been very tough physically. I was trying to get back to, to where I think my level should be and you know, it's been very difficult. My body is not letting that happen. And, uh, you know, uh, my, my wife uh, is again pregnant with a third child on the way. And I just think it's, it's about time for me to, to let go, you know, and stop punishing myself. The 2006 Australian Open finalist and Wimbledon semi-finalist has relished playing in an era of greats. Jaw-dropping stuff from Beck Dadis. Playing against the biggest names of history of tennis, you know, uh, the top four and being able to compete against them, playing finals of a Grand Slam, semi-finals here, you know, having all these emotions, all these memories. Hugely talented, Marcos was always a big hit with the fans. Oh, come on! One of the shots of the tournament. I think that's one thing that I will never, never forget is the love and uh, energy that I got from all the fans all over the world. And yeah, it's 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 one one thing that I don't want to leave, you know. <laughs> I want to keep, you know. And uh, yeah. 
sorry. And he's got the support of the vast majority of the neutrals. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, I want to keep all my life, and I think I will keep it because it's something special for me. In 2016, Marcos was joined on the ATP Tour by Stefanos Tsitsipas, the first Greek player to break into the top ten. They quickly became friends. I wish you came earlier. With this? On tour. With this legenda. <laughs> to have somebody from the same uh, country, language and same mentality as you. Hold my phone. <laughs> it's something really nice and uh, I wish, I wish I, I had him earlier. I think it, he, he would have helped me have a better career also and learn from him a lot. And I think we could have helped each other. But, uh, you know, uh, he, he's a great human being. Uh, he's so focused on what he has to do and he loves this sport so much. So when it's all over, what would he like his legacy to be? I think I am remembered as the smiling, smiley guy on court, and and I, I'm I'm good with that. And uh, yeah, I think all the messages I get from fans, from 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 people around, from other players too, is is the person I was. Oh, wonderful hands! I think for anybody in this world, it's. It's very important to get the respect that you always had for people and for to get it back at the end. I think it's the best gift ever. He's done it! Marcos Bagdadis has taken down the world number one. Marcos battled his way into the second round at Wimbledon and leaves the sport with the love of the fans and the respect of his fellow players. Thanks for the memories, Marcos. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. During Wimbledon fortnight, there was the ideal chance for fans to engage with the upcoming ATP Cup, a team event set to revolutionise the sport. You know, we are launching the season with a global event that's going to be broadcast in every country and region around the world. We're going to have full stadiums. We have an excited fan base. We're going to have the best players playing. After all, it's their event. It's going to be great for the sport of tennis to be launching week one with this uh, size and this extent of an event. This event's very special for the ATP. We want to position this event as the pinnacle of our sport. It's a major, major platform for tennis and being able to come in with the ATP Cup, a 24-country team competition at the start of week one, we want the media to be involved. They're very, very important to us. We've got a phenomenal media group behind the sport and they're here with us and they're part of this event with us. And we've positioned this event for the players to go out there and on a great platforms and amazing locations and shine and show what they do best and play for their country. It's been electric recently. As we've increased our promotion and the awareness leading in towards the draw on the first entry deadline on September 13th, everyone seems to be so excited by it. Everyone wants to know which countries are qualifying, which players are playing, which locations may they be in. It's quite a unique situation for us to be able to have a major event in week one leading in to the Australian summer and actually encompassing three locations with teams and flags and countries and players and captains and, and all the nation behind these players. 
but also an element of individuality to it, where players are playing for their countries, but they're also playing for ATP ranking points, which is extremely important to start the year off. So it, we feel like it's got an element of everything. We have the first 18 countries qualifying on September the 13th. And once you lock yourself in as a number one player based on ranking at the first deadline, your country is set to be in this event come January. So we know that the players will be pushing for this. We know that there's some major Master 1000 tournaments coming up ahead. There's some major 500 and 250s as well. And there will be a surge for this deadline because ultimately, as I say, once your name's in there, you're confirmed and your country will be there. We're even hearing players talking amongst each other about where players are going to be ranked, who's going to be selected, who's going to be on the team, who does the number one player select as the captain, who they recommend should be the captain. This conversation is already taking place amongst the players and once we hit the 13th of September, we have a very good idea then who's going to be in the event. We have a week which we know players love to participate in. We know it's a majorly important week at the start of the year and we can start off with a bang. It, we bookend the season with, with the ATP Cup at the start of the year and the NITO ATP Finals at the end of the year and it just works very, very well with two major events run and owned by, by the ATP in collaboration with Tennis Australia who are one of the most dynamic partners that we could actually ever have asked for. In phenomenal locations and cities and stadiums, we're going to make this very special for everyone involved. Craig Tiley, CEO of Tennis Australia and Ross Hutchins, the ATP Chief Player Officer there on the ATP Cup at the start of 2020. So attention now switches back to the ATP Tour. And this week that means two events at the 250 level in Atlanta and Gestad and a 500 in Hamburg. Last year, Nikolaus Basilashvili claimed his maiden tour title there under the guidance of coach Jan de Witt. So Nick McCarville asked the German what he's done to turn the Georgian into a title winner? That's a good question and the answer is not easy. I try to focus on the main things. Uh, we've implemented a bit more structure in the whole thing and that starts with things around and also on the tennis court to have a bit more structure in the process of work and also in the, in the, in the process of playing matches. It sounds a bit more simple than it really is and it's only possible because Nico had already a lot of good things, he had a lot of strengths, he had a lot of tools, a lot of weapons to take down players and I felt this giving it a bit more structure was the main part for the first step that we did last season. And when you say structure, now actually we just had one of your colleagues joking that you were going to give us all your secrets, but I, I don't want you to give us all of them, and I know you won't, but when you say structure with someone like Basilishvili, who's been on tour for a while, what would that entail, or how are you trying to bring together his best tennis because it's different from the practice court to the match court? I don't think it's different from the practice court to the match court. No, I would, I, no, I would not agree. Um, on the practice court, uh, you have to do all the work that you are able to execute on the, on the match court. Um, and it's pretty much the same what you do out there. Instruction means, to give you an example on return, to have uh, clear ideas where you're going to stand, where are the zones where you're going to hit your returns and where is the zone that you want to cover the court and what you have to do if the plan is not executed well and you have to adapt to a different situation. I feel the starting of the points really has to be well organized and there we need structure. The same like you need structure off the court, like how early you have to be there, how you have to prepare, you need to have routines. 
it's a lot of small things adding up and, and all those give you the opportunity to perform in the matches. And in the matches is the thing that you guys can see in public, but yeah. this does not happen out of nowhere. It's, it's a lot happening before we can see these guys perform on that level that we see. The work on the practice court is more about getting the tools right and getting the basic ideas right to get them in place that you can use them for a specific strategy which is then very individual depending not only the opponent but also circumstances where you play. It makes a huge difference if you play here on a dry court on 30 degrees when it's slippery and ball is bouncing really high or if you play on 14 degrees on a rainy day uh, with a very sticky and slow court. Uh, you have to adapt to those circumstances like you have to adapt in some way to your opponents but the possibility to do that, you have to work hard on every day on the practice court, on the gym, in the mental preparation, in anything what comes up front. And then you are able to make a more or less smart plan to take down some individual opponent. And, and this is very specific. And on the practice court, it's not that specific. It's more... It's detailed work, but it's more to be ready for anything. And then yeah, if we okay. know we would play rougher than today on the practice court, we would really address it in a specific way. As we don't know if we play left-hand or right-hand guy, we have to wait for this first, and then you can make a specific plan. Uh, so you've worked with many different players in your career, G. Simone, in uh, Andrea Pekovic, I believe, Gilmalfis as well. Um, I think what I was trying to get to is that some players practice differently than they play or the transfer transfer of their best tennis from the practice court onto the match court can it be challenging for some players to find that best tennis in a match court i would not agree that too many players are playing different in practice and in matches there is a difference concerning the tension that they have and the focus that they have but i'm a big fan of executing quality plays and especially when we talk about technique and physical stuff you have to do your homework on the practice court and in the gym there is no way of of looking for any shortcut and if you have all this when you have all the players that are very stable they still have to do it when you talk to Roger he still has to go to all the physical routines he still needs his time to have a preparation period He's still practicing with a lot of energy and focus when he gets ready for some tournament. Then in the tournament, then you see when the players are just warming up or going through the routines for an hour. That's different, yeah. But then they are ready. But to get ready, I would not agree so much with that it's that different. Yeah. Uh, you've done work in football. So how, what have you taken from that? Or what is the relation? How can you bring what you've done in other sports into tennis? I did not only do work in soccer, I also worked in other professional sports. Uh, and from every sport you can take always a lot. Uh, in soccer, to take to the tennis, for me there are three areas where I feel it's helpful. It's the physical part. These guys are very, very precise in the physical development of players. They have a situation that is a bit easier to handle than ours because they know upfront very early where the competition is going to be and how many they're going to have. So they are a bit more able than us to be really precise in planning and executing practices. And 
I feel it's inspiring to watch and to listen to them how precise they really do it. And I try to take as much as possible from it and then we have to adapt to our situation. That's one thing. Yeah. Second thing yeah. is the analyze of the game, especially concerning video. Uh, they are the same as volleyball where I worked also. Hmm. They are a lot ahead of us and you talked about Craig before. He's one of the few guys who's really on top of things in that area in our sport. I feel we are pretty much behind in tennis yeah, to other okay. sports. And that's also another thing that I try to take from them and, and analyze is different in football or in volleyball or in any sport, it's going to be different. But we can look at how they do it, what kind of tools they, they use and how they approach to it. And then we have to make a transfer to the tennis. We cannot copy one on one. But it makes sense to take a look at those people that are more advanced than ourselves. That was the second thing where I'm taking a look at. And then the third thing is uh, I'm, I'm very close to the coach in the football. And we have a very connected relations since some years. And we are talking very open about what happens in the other sport. And for me, it's very helpful to get his insight about what happens in the tennis and with my players because he has a different view on things. And for me, this is very helpful to get that different view because you have your own view. You're yourself all the time. You're in the same situations all the time. And we have a tendency to get blind or have blind spots to not realize things anymore that maybe somebody else would recognize immediately that there's a way to do things much better, that there's a smarter way to approach things. And that's the third thing where I really try to take something. I'm listening very carefully to whatever he has to say about my players or tennis in general, because he's crazy about tennis the same like I'm crazy about football. So we really watch a lot what happens in the other sport. And we are not the experts, yeah. but he's somebody who, who, who does professional sport on the highest level. And he really understands a lot of things. And he has a very good view on many interesting subjects without going into deep but i'm learning from him yeah what we hear from on the journalism side is that players are you know traveling with bigger teams and taking care of their bodies more than they ever have in, in the past in tennis but what i think i am hearing you say is that like the work that craig o'shaughnessy's done and it sounds like some of the work that you're doing is that maybe that part of tennis where you can really pick apart an opponent's game or plan or make game plans, is that something that can be uh, dug even deeper into in the sport? No, well, it will be. I'm pretty sure. I mean, you see in any other professional sport that it happened already. Video analysis and all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's also video analysis in tennis, but on a pretty basic level, let's yeah. say, being careful. Uh, if you see what the, what the volleyball and football guys are doing, they are way ahead of us. And I think we're going to see it more and more in tennis also. It will develop. It's, tennis is a very special sport with all these traveling demands we have, with all these people around with a very special situation. I feel in many parts we are just slow in developing. <laughs> And the pressure is maybe in these areas not as big as in football. Because in football, if you don't have this on the top, top level, you can't compete anymore. As simple as that. And if you have other team sports, I'm German. If you play first division in German, handball, basketball, volleyball, whatever it is, and you don't have it on really good level, you can't compete anymore. You're just out. You don't have a job anymore. 
In tennis, it's still a very old-fashioned style, and the pressure is much less than in these team sports. But still, it will go in that direction. I'm pretty sure. And I mean, I just take a choice for myself. I invest a lot of time, money, everything in getting as good as possible there, because I believe in it. And, and, and every coach and every team, they have to take their own choices. Nobody has to believe that it's right what I'm doing. There are a lot of ways you can be successful in tennis. I don't believe that I found the only way that is going to yeah. make people happy and better. I just do what I believe in. Yeah. And lastly, uh, I am not sure of when you started with Basilishvili. Was it last year, sometime in 2018? Uh, we started in June 2018. Do you feel like uh, when you are working with a player, as you have in the past, that it takes time to develop the, the coach and player relationship so that you can fully get out of each other what is best for, for both of you, but also especially for his tennis? I don't think that this is a relation thing. No, I would not agree with that term. The relation thing has to be sorted very soon. Because if it's not sorted very soon, whatever you're going to do is not going to work. I talked about the structures and the basics that we were addressing. And this also has to happen very soon. And I don't think it's too complicated. And then you get into detail. And then we get to the point where it makes sense to work longer with the player. Because this game is very complex and we have so many areas that, that you can address. I see so many areas where my players still can improve, where most of the players still could improve, that it takes time to address everything. And, and you cannot address everything at the same time. There needs to be a smart order, there needs to be the right moment to do it. Then you need to have the knowledge and the tools to do it in the right way. And that takes time and I'm a big fan of working longer with players. Most of the players that I worked with was for, for a cyclist of four to five years. And there is development in that time. And yeah, also the personal relation is going to develop, but not in the basics. You have to sort that in the start. If, if you believe you can sort it on the way, good luck. I, I don't believe in that. So you mean digging into those details, that's the stuff you feel like takes more time? Yeah, it takes more time and, and it's not only about developing, you also have to make this reality check every time when you change something. You change something and then you have to go to a full period of playing tournaments with it and, and checking out if it really works, if it's really stable, if it's really progress, or if you have to readdress, or if you maybe made a step in the wrong direction and you have to correct yourself. And that takes time. Jan de Witt, one of the most interesting men in tennis. That is it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Seb Lozier. Stay tuned to ATP Tennis Radio as we'll have regular updates from Hamburg. Just ask your smart speaker to play the ATP Tennis Radio news or search for it on TuneIn. And join us next week when we'll be rounding up events in Hamburg and looking ahead to the US Open Series where ATP Tennis Radio will once again bring you live commentary including for the first time from the City Open in Washington. All that to come. In the meantime, enjoy the tennis. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. 
ATP Tennis Radio is bringing you more live radio coverage of the ATP Tour than ever before as the American hardcourt season swings into action. Join us from the 29th of July to the 4th of August as we bring you ball-by-ball coverage every day of the City Open in Washington. And Sasha Zverev defends his title here in Washington. He has defeated Alex Dimonor in straight sets, 6-2, 6-4. He punches the air with both hands. That's followed by full coverage of the Rogers Cup in Montreal and the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati from the 5th to the 18th of August. Big inside out forehand and that is it. Game, set, match, championship, Rafa Nadal. The world number one is down on his knees. Absolute delight. Forehand is skewed and Djokovic makes history. He raises his arms aloft and he roars. A simply stunning performance from Novak Djokovic from start to finish. If that isn't enough, we'll also be rebroadcasting US Open Radio's coverage of the US Open from Flushing Meadows from the 26th of August to the 8th of September. Slice of Raonic down the line, great depth on that. Oh, Djokovic has made an outrageous forehand there. In total, that's 35 days of live coverage of the American hardcourt season here on ATP Tennis Radio.